find one of my favorite things in preparing for talking about missions is to read mission biographies. This is from John Patton's 30 Years Among the Cannibals of the South Seas. Before he he went, a man, a very well-meaning Christian man in church, heard he was going to the New Hebrides, to which two missionaries had gone, I think, seven or 12 years before and had been killed and eaten about 20 minutes off the boat. And Mr. Dixon replied when he heard where John Patton was going. He said, cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton's response was, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. Every year, we do a month on missions and what it means to be a global Christian. You know, there's no other subject we, do, we devote one-twelfth of our time to other than just playing straight Jesus. Um, and part of the reason for that is because I want to be that kind of Christian, And I find that by studying the lives of missionaries, I run into a whole lot of that kind of Christian. And it does something to me that's really important. But there's another reason why we have Global Missions Months. Um, It's two reasons that come together. And the first is that the world is imminently forgettable. The The world is so forgettable for us. And um, if, the world, if the world out there isn't beating our behinds economically or militarily, they're, they're just really easy not to think about. But yet, the mission of bringing the news about what Christ has done to all people is basically the only thing Jesus explicitly told us was our task to do together as the church, the people who belong to him. Um, You'll probably remember most sermons on the biblical mandate for missions quote this passage. It's called oftentimes the Great Commission. That is the the big thing Jesus told us to do and sent us to do by his authority. It says this at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the last thing that Jesus shares before he ascends, ascended into heaven. And then the very next book in the Bible, after you get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the life of Jesus' death and resurrection, you get Acts, which is the stuff that happened, right? Acts is a very creative title, right? And it's basically how the church took that commission, received the Holy Spirit's power, and went and did it. And two pages into that, you have, it says that the missional church gets started. They go out and they start sharing it. And that book is basically about how the followers of Jesus went from a group of people that was like 120 people in an, in an upper story apartment to a movement of thousands on multiple continents in just the first generation. It was a church that was missional. It was, it was on mission. It was going out to do that thing they got commissioned for. And then when you get to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which most some pe- usually people are either infatuated with that book or they are averse to it. I'm the second category personally. And, but it, whatever else that book teaches, what it definitely teaches is that in the end, 
there will be a prevailing church that is still on mission. In between Acts and Revelation, you know where I'm going with this? Lays us. And if we are in that great trajectory of the people of Acts that started out living by that commission, and the end where all things are redeemed, where Jesus fully redeems a church that is on mission, we have to be one. And now, here's the thing about being the pastor of a church that has a missions month. The thing that I get invited to speak about every single year is always the biblical mandate for missions. They, they get other, these other sexy mission speakers to come in and talk about all the other cool stuff. And they come to me and they say, Nick, why don't you kick us off or finish us up with the biblical mandate for missions? And so here's the thing about that. If I'm going to be here more than like a couple years, I'm going to have to mix it up a little bit and just kind of hit one aspect of it. And like pull out just like one thing and talk about that so that every year we can talk about the same thing but talk about something different. Because it's really easy to go online and go back to February of last year and hear whatever I said then, right? So what I want to talk about, the angle I want to come at, is I want to talk about this concept all through the Bible that's a huge concept that most of us, whether we're in the church or outside the church, understand very little. And it's the concept of a name. God's name. One of the things that is really important for us to recognize is that from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, God is intensely interested in his name in a way that really puzzles most of us. If you read the Bible, it's very easy to get really puzzled by that. Like, why is, why is he so into his name, right? If you, if you look in Matthew and the Great Commission, people talk about how to break that down grammatically, and I'm not going to get into that right now. They're right when what they say. But one of the ways to break it down is the things that are said that are very specific and the things that are said that are kind of vague. There are three things in the Great Commission that are kind of vague. Well, they're, they're not vague. They're just real general, right? So go. It's pretty general, right? Just go. Make disciples. Help people become followers of Jesus. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So teach them to obey. Go make disciples, Right? Disciples go. Then he gets to baptism, right? And he says, now I want you to baptize them. Now that's pretty specific. That's a very specific action. And he's like, I want you to baptize them. And I specifically, you specifically need to do it, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the most specific part of the Great Commission. It's very specific. I want you to baptize everyone. They're all getting dunked. And when they do, you put a very specific name on them. Because when they become my disciple, and they belong to me, and I belong to them, and their identity is based in me, and my identity is remade and built in them, and my reputation is bound with their reputation, you put a name on them. Because when they become my, they take my name. And you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why every believer needs to be baptized. And that's why Jesus commanded every believer to be baptized. Because you need to publicly take that name. To be a Christian and not be baptized is to have gotten married without any kind of ceremony. You're still married, but you missed something that was kind of big. It's much more reasonable to get married without a ceremony. So you start with that, but then, like, the minute you get in Exodus, so Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, right? Have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? So there's this list of, like, ten big commandments. And if you and I were to, to decide which, if, like, if God was like, okay, um, I'm going to give you, I'm, I got a lot to do. I want you to do a little editing work for me. So I'm going to give you a list of the Ten Commandments, and we really need to get this down to nine. 
I don't like round numbers. It's too cliche for the newer generation. So let's get it down to nine. So here's a Sharpie marker. You cross one out. Like, which one would you cross out? Now, I mean, some of us would be like, well, let's cross out the don't steal one. But I mean, if you're going to try to do what you think, what you think God would want you to do, or say, you know, like something like, oh, let's, let's cross out the one that society doesn't really need. I bet if we took most people, gave them that list, had them cross out one, they would cross out the name one. I mean, honestly, that's got to be the weakest link, right? I mean, this is a list where it's don't murder people, don't steal people's stuff, including their spouse, don't, like, give false testimony to put innocent people in prison. Like, it's that list. And on that list is don't use God's name lightly, ever. Don't ever say God lightly, because that name isn't light, it's heavy. And to use God's name like it isn't God's name is to upend reality. So never, ever do that. It's really hard to teach like nine-year-olds that. But it's, it's a very simple way to teach them about the nature of reality. Why don't you say, oh my God? The reason you don't say that is because that is not a light word that you're using in the lightest possible way. Right? You move on. One of the sternest warnings in Deuteronomy as you work through the first five books of the Bible is um, for prophecy. He goes, he says, listen, if there's a prophet and they put my name on stuff, I'll just tell you what. If it's not me that's saying it, I'm going to call them to account. One of, the, one of the clearest promises of judgment is when you put God's name on something and it's not true. Right? In Acts, when you get to Acts— um, and people are going out to tell people about the news about G- what Jesus has done for them. They don't just say, believe in Jesus. They keep saying the name. Like, for ex- let me show you. Acts 2.21, the first sermon by the church. Peter says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's actually a quote from the Old Testament. A couple of verses later, he says, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? You have to take on his name. That's part of this. Right? Acts 3.16, there's this guy who's healed, and people are like, well, how did that guy get healed? Like, what name did you call him? Like, whose authority? How did this happen? And he says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. And that just keeps going all through the book of Acts. And when you finally get to the end of Revelation, one of the things, like, if anybody, if people know anything about Revelation, what do they know? Like, people who don't go to church, or people who do go to church. If you know one thing about Revelation, what is it? Right? It's the 666 bit, right? It's like, there's the devil, and the devil puts his mark on people, and it's like 666, and it's like on their forehead, and on their hand, and they're, let's make a movie about this with bad special effects, you know, and that kind of thing. And here's the thing, that's in there. That's totally in there. Totally in there. But one of the things don't, people don't realize is at the very end of Revelation, when everything is set right and it talks about what's going to happen when Christ finally comes as a conquering king to redeem everything, it says a bunch of things that are awesome about the end. But in verse 3 in chapter 22, this is the last, the last part of the Bible. It says, There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Then verse 4 says this, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. It's kind, it's kind of a—like, that's kind of weird, right? Like, the first time you look at it, you're kind of like, and his name is on. But that is meant to signify the beauty of final redemption. 
the final reality of our identity, our belonging, who we are, and who we are with, the authority that we're under, and the authority we're protected by forever, that God's name is put on us. That's supposed to be this immensely good news, as, as good a news as that every tear will be wiped away from, someone, from, from the eyes of the weeping, that there will be a river of life and trees that bear fruit every month, that, there, there, that everything will be set the way it should be. In that time where everything is set maximally beautifully the way God wants it to be, his name will be on us. One of the things that, um, that one of the problems that this brings up, I think, for our practice as believers is that um, I don't think that we think about, we ha- I don't think we have a theology of this when we say things like, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus. Um, I think that we tend to use those phrases religiously or superstitiously. We just kind of use them, and it's just kind of in Jesus' name, and we don't have like a whole biblical theology of what it means to be under the name of God. And so it's very easy to think of that in terms of like, that's just what you say at the end of a prayer. It's just our ritual. It's just what we do, because Jesus must have said it somewhere. Or um, it's like what makes the prayer work, you know? So you say your whole prayer bit, and you get to the end, and if you say in Jesus' name, then it works, you know? Or, you know, if you say in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, you kind of do this. And then if you just, Jesus, then you just do the fist pop, so it's in Jesus' name or something. And that, that sort of makes it work, right? And there's actually a couple of guys in the Bible that thought Jesus' name worked that way. It's in the book of Acts. There are a couple, there are a group of guys named the sons of Sceva, right? And there's this, there's this part where they hear that this Paul guy is going around and he's casting out demons in Jesus' name, right? Like freeing people from this terrible psychological and physiological bondage that comes from demon possession. And like, that's something that like they do too, right? And they go, ooh, here's something for a bag of tricks. We'll use the name Jesus. So they don't even really know who Jesus is, but they know that Paul refers to him. So they go, the seven of them, to to cast a demon out of this one guy. And he says, "Um, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, come out of him. Apparently, the the demon is not moved by this appeal and responds. He's like, okay, I know who Jesus is. No question about that. And I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you think you are, right? And then he jumps at the guys, and they—it says they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, this next part, this next comment has nothing to do with church, really. But just so you know, if you get into a fight, and at the end of the fight, the person is not only bleeding, but naked— you won, okay? You, you, that you won that fight. So, especially if there's seven of them. And see, the, the whole point here is Jesus' name isn't magic. This isn't magic. Why, why do we even say in Jesus' name at the end of prayer? Why would we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why does the name matter? And it's because the question is, why are you even talking to God? Why does it matter that in a universe as big as this, that you would say something in God's general direction, that that wouldn't matter at all? Why would God care? Why would you have the moral right to bring it up? Why would God be responsive to your request? Why would any of that matter? It's not because you say the right magic words and the spell works. 
It's because if you say in Jesus' name, it is supposed to signify who you belong to, who your will belongs to, from which the prayer came, and whose will and authority that prayer is offered under. So that out of the relationship that you have and out of the shared identity you have with the Savior, you believe that you are at purposes with one another and in relationship with one another. And out of that relationship and identity, God would be responsive to you. And that identity has only one basis, and that is in the death and resurrection of Jesus in his name being put on you. So we say, in Jesus' name. Now, one of the things that happens, though, I think sometimes, is people, people oftentimes from the outside of the church, or even from the inside of the church, they have a tough time with that. The whole concept of a name, and especially this idea that God is so interested in his name, because it kind of feels sort of self-important or something like that. But you see, all of us really know the value of a name without thinking about it. If I, if I told you to give us a—to write a blog post on the importance of a name, you might be a little bit puzzled about where to start. But we all really know. We all really know. And one of the things I've—well, so here are a couple examples. One is, um, I was lecturing one of my kids yesterday about the importance of family because she was fighting with her sister. And um, so I was like, listen, she's your sister. You you belong to each other. We're in a family. Family is like one of the most important things. And my my nine-year-old goes, well, why? Why is family one of the most important things? And so my answer right then was providence. In God's providence, he has chosen to put you together with these people and has dictated certain re- responsibilities in a relationship within a family. And one of those relationship responsibilities is love. God has sovereignly chosen that you would love the other and has ordered humanity that we would take care of each other in families. Now, the next answer could very easily be because you two will always share a name. You will always be Gibsons. And whatever our name means or doesn't will always apply to the two of you. One of our interns, Tina, who like helped, helped run the search committee thing, she did all the work for it. She's just an amazing servant. It's been so great to have her as an intern. And um, Adam Darbone, our, our pastoral intern last year, came to me and said, hey, I was talking to this person who's um, one of Tina's family members, and she was thinking about talking to us about the internship program. And I did not say to him at that moment, you know, go run her through all the forms and stuff. I said one thing to him. Go find out if she's like, he's, she's like Tina. Because the name Richardson means something to me. And if somebody is in her family, that me, that they're already on the inside track. Because the name means something. Also, I remember when I was in, I was doing youth ministry, I was studying some stuff about how advertising affects young people. And I was, I was ranting at a dinner one time with the people we were living in about advertising its effects on young people. And I, but I didn't use the word advertising. I used the word marketing. And I, and the guy, the, the father and the family we lived with was a CEO of a corporation in Chicago. We lived in their pool house while I was in seminary. And so I was like, man, marketing is just so bad for people in the way it affects their psychology, blah, blah, blah. And he said, and, and this is a guy who's very loving, but on this one, he just wasn't going to suffer a fool. And so he said, whoa, 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 that's not what marketing is. And I was like, well, yeah, it is. And he said, no, no, no. Marketing can, marketing, especially in the form of advertising, does through, all marketing is, is getting your name out to the market. That's all it is. It's that people would know the truth about you. And so marketing has three purposes. You can either lie about others and about yourself so that people would think you have a name you don't deserve. 
People who don't know you could simply find out about you. It could be informational. Or you could defend your name from unjust attack by others. And so there are two absolutely legitimate and necessary purposes of marketing. To defend your name and to let your name be known. And that is necessary and important. And if I didn't do that in my job, I'd be fired and I should be. If you think about this as well, um, also, if, if you, I've talked to a number of soldiers who've been deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last seven or eight years. And when they come home, what a number of them have said is, yeah, there were some really tense moments and we did some stuff that was dangerous. But most of the time, we just spent time with people and got to know them and formed relationships. Partly because it was good for intelligence, but also a big part of it was just breaking down the stereotypes they had about Americans. By giving aid and loving these kids and playing with them and doing these sorts of things, we were, we were trying to rehabilitate the name of America among people who had been really lied to. Now, whether you think America deserves a good name among these peoples is not relevant to my talk. What matters is that most of us believe a, a good name is worth fighting for. And pastorally, where I've seen this the most is people will say this doesn't matter to them, but I've watched people lose their fortunes, their homes, their marriages. I've seen their children go waywardly, and I have never seen anything destroy people, especially men, like the loss of their good name. Men who would never have said that that was their idol, that, that was their real identity. But I've watched people get attacked in public for things that aren't true and have their good name dragged through the mud. And I've watched that affect them more profoundly than any other loss I've seen in other parts of their lives. Because though somebody won't say, my name is important, it is a universal human truth that our names are so important to us. And we can sit here and we can say, man, God is just so self-important, interested in his name. But we are so, we care so much about ours. In fact, um, one of the reasons things are classics is because they're universal in how they relate to people. Now, if you remember back in high school when they made you listen to the record or read the book of The Crucible, you remember this? The whole play comes down to one moment. John Proctor is ready, to, is, is, is willing to lie and say he did something he didn't do and say it openly, but the thing he will not, he will, cannot bring himself to do is to sign his name on it and for it to be posted for everybody to see. He, even though he's willing to lie, even though he's willing to be pragmatic, even though he, he's, he's willing to give in all persons, the one thing he is ready to be hanged for is he will not give up his good name, even though his name isn't particularly good. And one of the real things we have to get through our heads is that God, there are some things in which God's morality is similar to ours, and there are other things in which it is not related, and this is one of them. Uh, think about it this way. Let's say there's a—so the Super Bowl is today, right? I've heard. Uh, two uninteresting teams playing, right? And let's say you get to the end, and one of the players just really stands out. And they, they come out, and the, the sports person is like, you know, it's a great game. You're the MVP. You had such a great job. Um, and they give them the microphone to make some comments, right? Now, there's, there's two things that they can say that make perfect sense. One is, they could transfer the glory to somebody else who really did help them achieve it. So they could say, I just want to thank the organization. I want to thank my coach. I want to thank God for the gifts he's given me. I want to thank, I want to thank, I want to thank. That is to transfer the glory to everybody who was involved in your success. That's perfectly reasonable, right? The second thing is, is, yeah, wasn't it great? That is, we're both observing what I actually did, and I actually played really great. And it, wow, is it, yeah, I mean, I'm really happy. They can just be happy. 
The thing that would be kind of silly is if they were like, you know, I didn't play, I didn't really play well. I mean, I just didn't feel like that was a very good performance. People would look at me like, you're stupid. <laughs> right? Because he should be glad. It's, it would be, it, be, the reason why people saying I'm fantastic is, is really dumb is because people aren't fantastic. And if they are fantastic, they don't have anything that they didn't receive from somebody else. Other people who have supported them and ultimately from God. And so when we say I'm fantastic, that, that is morally not praiseworthy because it's not true. But you see, God has not received anything from anyone and he is the maximal performer. And so God does not transfer— it doesn't make sense for God to transfer glory. There's nowhere for God to transfer his glory to. Glory gets transferred up the ladder until it gets to God, and then it goes nowhere. He is the glorious one. And for him to be interested in his own name, he's the only being for whom his name should be maximally adored. And so not only is God interested in his own name, it would be wrong for him not to be. Not only because it would be wrong, a wrong valuing, but listen, if God wasn't that interested in his own name, why would we be? God demanding we see his name, his character, and his identity for what it is, is important for us. When God values himself, he points to the most supremely valuable thing that there is, and therefore points us to it. And it's wrong for us to be repulsed by that. We should be glad for that. God is interested in his name, and he should be interested in his name. And him being interested in his name is an action of great love. So the second thing is, what's so important about a name? And there's, there's three things. There's a bunch of things you could probably say, but there's three things at least. And that is that a name stands for an identity, an authority, and a reputation. That is, who you are and to whom you belong. What's your identity? To your authority, what right do you have? And to your reputation, how are you to be known and regarded? And those, for all three of those reasons, God should be interested in his name. And his, that name ought to mean something to us. If we bear Jesus' name, it's because Jesus has put an identity on us and a belonging on us. To say we believe in Jesus' name is to believe that we have an identity that's rooted in him and that we belong to him. It's to recognize that any authority that we have, we have because of Jesus. Look, if somebody says to you, you know, what right do you have to tell people about Jesus and to tell them that if they, if they believe something else, you're implicitly telling them they're wrong or explicitly to explain your point of view and what right do you have? Well, you just go back to Matthew 28 where Jesus said pretty explicitly, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. Do you see the implicit logic there? He's saying, I have this authority and I'm giving it to you. That means you have authority. And Jesus did not give us authority to force anybody to believe in him. He told us exactly what he was giving us authority to do. We have authority to go, not to kill, but to be killed. We have authority to go. We have authority to make disciples by preaching and by teaching and by baptizing. We have authority to teach people to obey everything he's commanded. That's the authority we have. But that authority, we have all authority. We got it from Jesus. And lastly, reputation. One of the reasons why God should be interested in his name is that his reputation should be maximally great. And the human race, since the very beginning, has been contra-marketing against him as best we can to increase our own brand name. 
And um, that is not something God is okay with. And he, he would desire for his reputation to be known. And when you look in Scripture at what God accents, it's really kind of interesting, I think, in telling about his character what he accents. Because as powerful and glorious as God is in terms of the size of his might, that is not the main focus of the Scriptures. Though the Scriptures talk a lot about God's sovereignty and his might and his greatness. When it comes right down to specifically what he was trying to convey in Jesus— the might, the glory, the bigness of Jesus was veiled a little bit. It was his goodness that got its most full expression. Namely, in his, in his willingness to serve, to tell the truth, to love, and to show compassion and mercy. There's a passage in Romans 15, verses 8 to 11, where the apostle is saying this, and what he's saying, he's saying this to say that this is how God's name is going to get out to the whole world. The Gentiles are everybody who's not Jews, right? Everybody who is not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You fit in that category. Listen to what this passage says. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. See what it says about Jesus? He's saying, Jesus came and he served the Jewish people specifically so that all of the promises about God's merciful goodness to all of humanity, that if you call on his name, he will redeem and save you and bring you into this family that bears his name, that works for the redemption of all things under his authority and leadership. That that's, that's for everybody. It's for all the Gentiles. And, and Jesus came specifically to be a servant, to clarify that truth, that God is confirming that promise so that all the Gentiles, that means everybody everywhere, could know that and they could be glad in God. They could glorify God. That is, they could lift up God's reputation. God's reputation would be higher and wider in the minds of people because they would see God's mercy. And promising to us the truth that he would serve us in Christ to redeem all who would believe. That's the central part of the gospel that he wanted to make sure everybody—he didn't flaunt his greatness. He displayed his greatness so we could enjoy it, but what he flaunted, what he, what he put in front of our faces, what he, we try, he tried to make sure took up 80% of what our eyes could take in was the, the truthfulness of the promises of his mercy that it was, he was willing to serve us, to give us. And in seeing that goodness, it should lead us to be so happy and to want to expand his reputation and to live for his reputation. Let me just say a couple things about what our response should be. There's this passage in Chronicles that says, ascribe, that's not a word we use a lot, but that's like to say this person has this thing. This, just, this is true about that person. He says, listen, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. That is, not just Jewish people. The whole earth. The whole earth. Apply. Say this is true about God. His glory and strength the glory that's due, that's deserved to his name. And so, if we recognize that there's a certain kind of responsiveness that God really does deserve, you could say, one of the things that becomes clear is that missions and worship come from the same thing, right? We spent a month on missions, we're going to do a month on, or worship, we're going to do a month on missions. They come from the exact same thing. The human apprehension that God is glorious that his reputation could never be big enough in our eyes. 
that could never be lifted high enough. And that our whole life is the pursuit of a deeper apprehension of the greatness of God, mainly through the means of seeing it in Christ. And then to live that out among all people in everything we do. And if you ask the question, okay, Nick, how would I know, how would we ever know if our passion for that was big enough? How, how could we ever know if, I mean, how, how passionate should I be about that? And I would say, I think we need to look to the one whose passions are all perfectly ordered. And so I think we would know that our passion for God's glory was approaching where it should be, where it was meant to be, when our passion for God's name was something like God's passion for his own name. Now, it's very easy to feel like, because in in, in order for that to happen, we have to forget about our own name. God said to Abraham one time, he said, listen, I'm going to make your name great. That's the only way your name is ever really going to be great. It's going to be greatly known for the right reasons, is if God makes your name great. So our job is to forget about our name and to make a name for Jesus as he makes it through us. And when that happens, there's an enormous amount of freedom that comes. Because when the idol of our good name dies and our passion is wrapped up in the good name of Jesus, there will be a lot of pain when people attack Jesus' name. But we'll always know that isn't true. Or at least we can. But when people attack our good name, the thing that's so devastating about it is we can't defend ourselves. Our name will be destroyed. It is the citadel that will be breached. And, it, and a lot of times we'll deserve it. It won't even be unjust. There's this place in Scripture where um, this guy Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, is attacking the Christians everywhere he goes. And there's a point where Jesus shows up on the road to this city called Damascus, where Paul's on his way there. And he says, he shows up at this big light and knocks Paul off his horse. He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Because his name is on his church. And when the church is persecuted, he's persecuting Jesus because of the name, right? And so Paul's blinded. And so he, he kind of gets the picture that he's not supposed to be attacking Christians from that experience. But he doesn't, it's not all explained to him. And so Jesus go, goes and gives a vision to this guy named Ananias, who's a believer. And he says, listen, I want you to go to this guy named Paul. And this is what it says. Ananias says, um, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. See the relationship of authority and name there? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, a lot of people can look at that passage, if you don't know much about the gospel, and say, that there's, there's, there's divine karma right there, right? He's been all, he heard all these Christians, and now God is going to reach him, but he's going to make him really suffer to do that work. That's baloney. It's baloney. Paul actually says in 1 Timothy that the reason he believed God showed mercy on him for this is because God saw that his heart was that he was willing to do exactly what he thought was right no matter what the cost. But he was doing it blindly and ignorantly and therefore he was blaspheming and fighting against God. But what God saw was not somebody who had done this much bad and therefore if he could get him to do this much good, he could redeem him. No. What God saw was somebody who was, who was willing to do what they believed was right no matter what the cost. Somebody who, who, had, a con- who had a conscience, but their conscience was broken and he was willing to fix it. 
because years later, when Paul was actually living out how much he was going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus, he was in a jail, a Roman jail, and he was writing a letter to some friends in a city called Philippi. And this is what he wrote about this terrible thing God had done to him to make him suffer for God's name and to destroy Paul's name. This is what he said. What I, want to, what I really want is I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And look at what he calls the sufferings. In the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, what happened when Paul, when he lost his name, and he gave up his name to live for Jesus' name, so that Jesus' reputation would be great. Do you know what happened? He's free. And his sufferings were just things that that put him in relationship with the Savior. And let me just ask you something. Of all the people who lived in the times of the New Testament, whose name became great? Well, Jesus' name became great, right? But Paul's name became great. Among the apostles, Paul's name became the greatest name because he lost his name and he suffered much for the name of Jesus. And so... There are a few ways to apply this directly that we can actually do in our real lives. This will be kind of fast. The first is, is you can be part of a small group and you can make sure your small group really does support the missionary that you guys are assigned. We serve about 30 different missionaries and there's about 30 different small groups. There aren't four small groups that have your missionary. You're it. There aren't—the missions committee, it's not their job to support all of our missionaries. They help organize this so that we, the church, can do what the church does. And so you can actually pray for those people, find out what you can do to support them and encourage them, and you can actually do that. And it can make the difference—it can make a huge difference in their life. You, you probably don't know how big a difference you can make. The second is you can commit to a local church that substantially supports missions, global missions. Um, there's a lot of reasons people leave churches that are really silly— But if you came into my office and you said, Nick, I found out that High Point Church only gives 10% of the money it takes into global missions. And that's just not enough. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to find a church that gives more than that to global missions. I wouldn't necessarily think that's the best reason in the world, but I can can accept that reason. That's not a bad reason. Because you should be connected to and committed to a church that cares about the whole world. And it shows that somehow meaningfully. The third is, you can use your life, your money, and your expertise to to support reputation-increasing endeavors that Jesus is involved in. There's a couple, for example, that we're going to pray for next week um, who, their expertise is in psychology. They're psychologists. And that's, you know, what good is that? That's not good for preaching, usually. They just want to ask questions and get you to talk, right? Um, Sorry, that's not funny. Um, But for several years, and I think five years in a row, every year they've taken a couple weeks and they've gone to this area of the world where missionaries from all over the region are brought in and they do family and team counseling. They help people get over some of the issues that that are hurting them on the mission field and that are splitting up teams so these mission teams can work better together. People who would, who would have to come off of the field because of their marriage problems or their personal problems can, are getting help and and staying on the field. That's, and that they can only do that because of their expertise. And one of the great things about High Point Church is there are a lot of people here who have really expertise. And some of yours could be marshaled and used for the purposes of increasing Jesus' reputation. Another thing is cross-cultural hospitality. Um, Evangelism becomes missions in our definitions when it really becomes cross-cultural. When it's with somebody who's not like you. 
And there's tons of international students in this area that you can show cross-cultural hospitality to. Lexi and I um, had some Indian students when we did Taste of Madison two years ago. And we took them around in our car. We had them over for dinner a couple of times. The last time, the five had become eight or nine. And one of the things that I wanted to do with them was to use one of my hobbies to, to build our relationship. Now, d- listen, don't freak out when I tell you this, okay? I lived in the South for seven years. You've got to understand that about me, okay? But one of my, one of my hobbies is shooting. And um, so in, in, in India, a lot of people have never seen a firearm. There, it's, there's total restriction on firearms. They've never seen one, never shot one, never held one. And so it's like taking them to the moon, for them to see if I am and to go to— So there's, there's, a, there's a range where you can get a safety briefing, you can have a safety person overseeing it all, and you can be there, and then I can pay the expense for it. And they can have this really crazy experience for them they'll never have again. And they—I mean, they literally feel like they have flown to the moon and back and have had an experience that none of their family and none of the people they know could ever have. Um, but the bo- relational bonding that happens when, just to share that hobby of mine with them— is incredibly bonding and helpful. And there was one girl who's, Jain, who's a Jainist. So her religion is like, you cannot do anything that could possibly kill a living thing. They ob- they're not even allowed to touch farms. And I was like, so are you going to go? She's like, oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> be, but, and, and you can just see them light up because I want to share my— And there's lots, of, there's lots of people, and especially oftentimes international people, because there are lots of things that are totally normal to us that are totally weird for them. Like last year, um, Adam took these Indian students up to a water park in the Dells. Which is like this huge thing for them. They were like, oh, that's awesome. I'm just like, it's another day at the Dells, man. (laughs) I didn't even go. (laughs) But you can use cross-cultural hospitality and you can marshal your hobbies. And some of the things that you like to do that you may just be doing for yourself right now. But very easily God could use them to do something else. Right? Like, why not—why didn't—why didn't most of us invite a couple international students to our Super Bowl party? I didn't— we just, just last night it occurred to us we should invite a couple of non-Christian neighbors. Just last night. Why, why am I that dumb? I don't know. But if we thought along these terms, we could really get there from here, right? There's one more thing, and this is an inner thing, and that is, what would it mean if we just, we didn't think so much about the specifics of, oh, do this, don't do that, but if we just recognized God's passion for his own name, that that is the most loving thing he's ever done for his creation, to be passionate for his own name. And that we would forget about ours. We would receive the freedom of forgetting about our own name. That we would seek to make a name for Jesus, the one who's truly deserving, and let him do whatever he wants in his sovereignty and providence to make a name for us. Which probably would be good for the world if he didn't make a name for most of us, right? Think that about me. It's probably true about you. There's so much freedom in that if we would simply live to make a name for Jesus. There's this promise at the very, at the, at the, in Revelation where he's talking to these churches who are suffering so much. He says, listen, to you who overcome, and in each case there's seven different churches and he gives a different gift, but in one of them he says, I'm going to give you, in the end, I'm going to give you a white stone and it's going to have a name on it. A new name for you that only you will know. That's one of the gifts he's going to give you. He's not just going to give you his name. Ultimately, he's going to give you a new name. Your name is going to expire. It's dispensable. Jesus' name will last forever. And he will give you the new name you really require. And if you will put your faith in that, and if you'll walk in it, and you'll trust it, and great good will come not just for the nations, and not even just for the reputation of God, but it will come for you. 
God is strange like that in his mercy that those three things would always come together. Let's pray. Father, um, we want to be a people who believe the good news about what Jesus, who he is, that his name gives an identity, a belonging, puts on us authority in certain things, and has authority in all things, and that there is a reputation that we can be part of his reputation. It can set us free from being vigilant and fighters for our own. It can make us humble, and in making us humble, making us loving, and in turning us away from our own name towards the, the lives of others, it can make us more compassionate and more empathic and more loving. Father, we pray that the same realization of your good name would make us better worshipers and people who are more missional, because we know that there's no such thing as people who are really worshiping who are not on mission. And help us to find our place in that continuum between the first church of Acts that was on mission and the final prevailing church of Revelation that will be on mission till the end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.